you become prepared. Happy Sabbath. Uh, this is a special day for my wife and I. Lots of prayer. And um, we have both been uh, eagerly waiting for this day. Uh, we've been watching some of your sermons online. Um, we'll get to know each other more. And one of the things that I was wanted to see is how long are your sermons typically? You'll know why. <laughs> we'll get acquainted starting today. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I appreciate you entrusting each of us with this awesome opportunity to not just tell people, but get front row seats at seeing you work in people's lives, front row seats at seeing you restore and heal marriages, restore lives, bring people back to life from spiritual death. Father, this morning as we engage your holy word, I ask for your spirit to give us ears to hear and a heart to respond. Grant me clarity of expression, simplicity of expression, and that in all of this, Father, all of our hearts, mine included, would feel the compelling desire to say yes as you make a call upon each of us. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. It's going to be a series on the book of Jonah, which for me has become one of the punchiest book in the Old Testament. But I mean punchy is not like a harmful punch, but rather a um, confrontational punch. And confrontation is something we're not typically very comfortable with. I am not comfortable with confrontation because of the way that I've been conditioned to think about confrontation. Most of the confrontations that we envision are people getting in each other's face, yelling at each other. That's not how God confronts. And the book of Jonah can be summarized as a book that confronts not pagan nations, not God's people, but a prophet. And so we're going to start this morning by getting a little bit of context. I didn't know anything about Jonah prior to his engagement with Nineveh, but in studying and giving Bible studies, going through seminary, it helped me broaden. And I didn't realize that long before Jonah prophesied about Nineveh, he had been commissioned by God to prophesy to Israel. And this is it. 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27. It's on your screen, but you're welcome to use your phone, tablets, um, regular Bible if you like. Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria and reigned for 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is an important detail right there. And it's not that he differed. He, he kept with the same behavior as the, the, his predecessors. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not re, uh, depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. This is the, the uncomfortable part. God restored the territory of Israel according to the word of the Lord of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. Here it is. There he is. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And if you read the last two verses, it's very tender. This is a disconcerting statement that we would see in the Bible because we, te- we, we, te- we behave in, in a world that has cause and effect. But it doesn't work like that when God interposes his grace, his compassion, and his mercy in human experience. This, this king, Jeroboam, he is not repenting. He's doing evil in the sight of God. And yet God sends the prophet Jonah to tell him, listen, the enemy has been eating away, taken away from your territory. 
And it's not really the Arameans that are against you. There's an invisible adversary who wants you to, to disappear from the face of the earth because you hold a special knowledge about who I am. And though you're not being obedient, you're not being submissive, you're not being trustful of me, and you're suffering because of that, I'm going to send a servant to give you a message of hope. His name is Jonah. And what he's going to tell you is that I am going to restore what the enemy has taken from you. And so Jonah prophesies this message, and it becomes true. And the response that Israel gives to Jonah is that they ascribe, we may not know too much about Jonah, but Jonah was a very popular, very celebrated, very honored prophet during his time because of this prophecy. And one of the, the hints that we get as, as to how much he was honored it was this, is this last phrase. This last phrase that has um, Jonah, he mentions his father, the son of Amittai, his profession, what he does for, as an occupation, the prophet who was from Gath Heifer. It's almost like a curriculum vitae. This is his resume. This is his very long business card. You have to understand that in the time and place where this is being written, um, words are a commodity of space, ink, parchment. It takes a lot to write something down, so you're very economical with what you say. And to have invested this much description, not even Moses or Abraham gets this much description consecutively as the prophet Jonah. Because Jonah prophesied a merciful, compassionate message that God would restore what the enemy had taken away. And it confronts our, our, our definitions of mercy. We tend to subconsciously always attach a bit of merit. Well, that's because I, 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 I stopped doing what I'm doing. That's why God is merciful. Listen, the definition of mercy, the definition of mercy is that you purely only get goodness of God because of who he is and not who you are. That's it. You get what you don't deserve. You get goodness that you and I will never earn, never deserve. That's mercy. And it's right here. It's, it's so clear that God is simply saying, I don't want to see you destroyed, Israel. And if I don't intervene, I can't wait for you to get your act together. I have to intervene in your life or you will self-destruct. How this happens? Um, my wife and I have been pastoring in Michigan since 2008. We started at the village church in Bering Springs, and for the first couple of months, we acclimated to some of the cultural things here in Michigan. One of them being when we would say, ask people, they would say, where are you from? I'm from Argentina. Oh, I am from Buchanan. And they would do this. <laughs> I am from here. I am from here. <laughs> well, I am from down here, Argentina. <laughs> We caught on when we saw the map of oh, the mitten. We may be very versed in the geography of Michigan, the United States, or the parts of the world, but the Holy Land, we may not be as familiar, or that part of the Middle East. And so I'm going to show you with you a little bit of um, geography because it's significant. Um, I don't know if I, what I did with my clicker has a little laser pointer. Does this have a laser pointer in it? Praise the Lord. A prepared pastor with a prepared church. It's a good mix. That's a laser. Good. Um, here's Nineveh, by the way. This is where God called on Jonah to preach. And this is Israel right here. And this is Aram. 
This is the kingdom that was chomping away and chomping away at the territory of Israel to the point where the Arameans were being empowered by Satan to eradicate Israel. And of course, Jerusalem would be next. And Jonah says, no, that's not going to happen. God's going to do something amazing that will not just stop the invasion, but actually restore what, was been, what has been taken away by the Arameans. But how it's done is extremely amazing. Um, this is the, the Assyrian Empire right here during the time of Jonah. And Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And as Assyria begins to expand westward, it decides to take a little detour south. And that looks like a finger going, <clears throat> excuse me, I want your territory to the Arameans. And the king of Aram, this is right after Jonah prophesies. God is going to restore what the enemy has taken. But Jonah doesn't tell Israel how. But this history tells us how. God used the Assyrian Empire to tap Aram in the north. And of course, when Aram looks at this vast army, he pulls all his, his military resources south that are attacking Israel and says, you guys got to come up here. Assyria is coming to start attacking us. We need to defend ourselves from Assyria. And in doing so, it leaves Israel completely open to go back to the territories it used to have. It's amazing how God rescues us. We don't have to lift a finger if we just let the Lord fight our battles, amen? When God fights our battles, there are no casualties, just miracles. And this is the backdrop. This is the background for the book of Jonah, his first prophecy, because in this first prophecy, he's prophesying to Israel being unfaithful, uncommitted, idolatrous, completely rebellious against God, and gives them a message of mercy. And how God delivers Israel is indirectly through the Assyrian Empire, whose capital is the city of Nineveh. This is the background for the book of Jonah, which makes it punchy, confrontational in a healthy, redemptive kind of way. Jonah 1, 1 through 3 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Right off the bat, when I used to read this, I used to think those horrible Ninevites. But because I didn't know the background, what about Jeroboam? Let's do a little contrasting here. Israel, Nineveh, who had Torah? Who had the writings, the holy writings of God? Who had the Ten Commandments? Who knew, who had the true knowledge of the living God? Nineveh didn't. What was different about their behaviors? Nineveh was idolatrous. Was Israel idolatrous under the reign of Jeroboam? Yes, they were. Jonah was comfortable preaching a message of mercy to Israel, but he was not comfortable preaching that same exact message to Nineveh. This is a book designed to arouse a church that does not recognize underlying currents and beliefs and attitudes that prevent us from fulfilling the mission God has given to us. The book of Jonah is really uncomfortable because of what it, how it confronts us. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he said he paid the fare and went down into it to go down with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, I'd say this to the Lake City Church this morning. 
the Hebrew writers, the Aramaic writers, the, the New Testament Greek writers, they didn't have like question marks, hyphens, commas, periods, and exclamation points. But they would use literally, literally techniques to um, express those. And instead of using an exclamation point, they would use repetition when they wanted to emphasize something. And here, twice it mentions that Jonah is fleeing from where, church? From God's presence. Extremely significant. Two things. God has sent Jonah to Nineveh. That's the mission. This is now Jonah's mission. His first mission was to Israel, and he went and fulfilled that mission to to Israel. And now God says, your mission is to Nineveh, and Jonah says, I'm going to flee your presence. And in, in the Bible, in this biblical record, in doing this, two things are linked and inseparably united. You cannot... If you're fleeing the mission God has entrusted you, you are by default fleeing his presence. And if I am fleeing God's presence, it will be inevitable that it will be just a matter of time before I neglect the mission. I look at my own personal journey growing up in the church and my indifference that I had towards my classmates in public high school, the indifference that I had to my secular coworkers when I, when I worked, in secular employment. And that indifference, though, I would hear sermons and then I would hear appeals and I would hear similar messages that Elder Mishif mentioned from the pulpit as to how we're all entrusted to be witnesses and missionaries. I didn't feel a thing in my heart. The mission and the presence of God are inseparable. A Christian that is connected to the Lord today, if he or she neglects the mission, it's only a matter of time before his spirituality dwindles. And begins to wane. And someone that is intentionally neglectful of prayer and investment of time in the Word of God is only a matter of time if they were a Sabbath school teacher, if they were doing this kind of ministry or that ministry. My spiritual neglects eventually will affect my mission. I'll eventually will pull the plug. I'm burnt out, pastor. Pick someone else. I don't want to do this anymore. Pick someone else, pastor. I've used all of those expressions. And it's not that I needed a better, better sermon. It's not that I needed a pep talk or, or a camp meeting. I needed the presence of God again in my life. And Jonah is intentionally fleeing from the presence of God, which that in and of itself begins to reveal how prophets are humans just like you and I. That's what James says in chapter 5. Elijah was a man of like passions just like you and I. The only difference is that Elijah chose to pray. I can guarantee you that Jonah was not praying at this point. He had made up his mind, God wants me to go there. I'm going to Tarshish. And in doing so, something happens to the mind of Jonah in regards to God. He becomes delusional. Have you read that psalm that says, Oh Lord, if I climb to the highest mountain, you're there. Oh Lord, if I go to the lowest places on planet Earth, you are there. And then he asks the question, Where can I go that I can flee from your presence? Wherever you go, you are there. And that is a healthy uh, perspective of someone that has broken through through the, of the delusion of sin and understands that God sees me continually, not to find out what, what I'm doing wrong, but to, to watch over me, to protect me, to bless me. But Jonah is convinced that Tarshish, God won't find me there. And the sin delusion begins to affect him. 
The sin delusion that if, if humans don't see me, certainly God doesn't see me. If my parents don't know, certainly God doesn't know either. If I can hide it from my church, then God certainly cannot, cannot know either. Those are the symptoms that begin to perforate and begin to create weakness, internal weakness in the spiritual integrity of anybody that begins to neglect either one. You cannot neglect either one without affecting the mission and the presence of God. Uh, some more lessons that we can glean from the geography. I'll just share with you where Nineveh is at. I'm going to show you in a little bit where Joppa is at. But most importantly, this was extremely useful and helpful for me when I discovered where Tarshish was. It was in none of my Bible commentaries, all the maps that I purchased in, in the software. Um, I had to find Tarshish some other way. But again, going back to the maps, I showed Nineveh right here, Israel's right here. It's about if, if Jonah were to walk five hours a day every day, it would take him 40 days walking from Israel because he would have to go up and then down. This is desert. He would die right here. He would have to go like this to get to Nineveh. It's a long distance. 40 days, five hours a day walking nonstop. Um, here's Joppa. This is the harbor right there where uh, Jonah took off to Tarshish. But I ended up going to Google. Google helped me find Tarshish. Who, who would have guessed? Like I, sh I share with you, there's Joppa, there's Nineveh. Where is Tarshish? Tarshish is right here. <laughs> Off the southern coast of Spain. In 1492, who sailed the ocean blue? Now, that's 1492. That's over a thousand years after uh, Jonah did this, which means that in Jonah's time, the belief was, the common belief was that this is the end right here. You can't go any further. If you want to get away from anything on this side of the world, this is as far as you can go. You, Jonah could not have gone any further. And if Jonah would have been alive in 1493, he would have been with Columbus. <laughs> he would have gotten in one of those boats because he could not get further away from God. How can that happen? Well, if it can happen to a prophet, can it happen to someone like me? If the delusion of sin can corrode my spiritual integrity to the point where I become delusional in thinking, number one, I can somehow flee from the presence of God. I can somehow escape his searching eye. I can somehow escape the presence of his spirit, wooing me and wanting me back. We don't know really God's character. Jonah had prophesied about God, but when he came to understanding the heart of God, Jonah was allowing sin to taint and distort the character of the one that was sending him on this mission. So God sends a storm of confrontation. And these are the practical lessons that we as Christians can glean from this historical encounter between the living God who confronts a rebellious, disobedient prophet, a delusional prophet. Jonah 1, 4-13 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. Give me a synonym for cried out. Prayed. These are pagans that are praying. 
and, the, and they, they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea so to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was what? Fast asleep. Whom would God look with greater favor, a sleeping prophet or pagan pro, pay, uh, praying pagans? This is where the confrontation begins in the book of Jonah. There is a storm that is threatening the integrity of the boat, and the prophet is oblivious to it. He has fulfilled his mission. God won't see me at the bottom of the boat. If I was at the top, God might see me, right? If I'm helping with the sails, oh, there's, there he's looking at me. Let me go to the bottom of the ship. There God won't see me. That's the delusion of sail. Let me just close the curtain so my neighbors don't see. Let me delete the text message so no one will know. Let me go on private mode. You know, I became convicted with uh, these, and I'm not telling you what you need to do with your phones. This is my conviction that when people would send me a text message and I would read it, there's an option that doesn't tell them whether I've read it or not, which gives me the excuse to say, well, I didn't see it. Sorry, I didn't respond to you. But that's deceptive. So I took that off. God loves for us to understand that God is a transparent God. But God wants us to also understand that no matter how much we hide, we are transparent to him. And Jonah may have, might as well have been in a glass ship. But for him, he was like, God won't see me. God won't find me. Now I can go. So the captain came to him. They were looking for more hands to row. Everybody's exhausted. Hands are blistering with the ropes and stuff, trying to contain the ship. See if there's anyone else. Then There's no one else. Go, just go and check. And lo and behold, there's a prophet right there. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? You've been sleeping this whole time? Arise. We've been praying like crazy to our gods, to Neptune and Thor and the god of lightning and all these other, you know, well, I'm not going to go there. All these fake gods. And none of them are answering. None of our gods have answered our pleas of mercy and rescue. Certainly, you must have a God. Have you been praying so far? No, I haven't been praying at all. Can you please pray to your God? Maybe your God will hear us. And Jonah is swallowing hard. Because though he tried to hide in the providence of God, now the spotlight's on him. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And it's Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? Remember his curriculum vitae, his business card? That's the significant part of 2 Kings 14 here. Because everything that is said about Jonah, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the, the prophet from Gath Heifer, the sailors innocently are being guided by God to confront Jonah about his accolades, about his, the letters that follow his name. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? So he said to them, I am Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gathapher. All he could muster to say at this point when confronted by praying pagans, he couldn't have the gall to recall and recount all of his accomplishments. 
See, there's a hymn that says, once to every, there's a hymn entitled, Once to Every Man and Nation. Are you familiar with that hymn? It's a stanza that when I was starting to become familiar with English, intrigued me because it had a word that said uncouth. So I went and looked it up. It's bad. It's not good. Time makes ancient good uncouth. It doesn't matter what I did last year for the Lord. It's what you do for the Lord today that really matters. And some Christians live on what they did when they were young. When I was in a Spanish church in 13th Street in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, many of the church members there were, were um, Cuban immigrants. They, they fled during the, the Castro regime in the 80s. And you could see their spirituality just going down the hill, especially when cable got a Spanish channel, Univision. Their spirituality just went down the tubes. Everybody got addicted to soap operas. It's a Hispanic weakness. And these Cubans will go up to the front of the church, would talk and give us youth uh, incentives. And they, the phrases were always like this. When I was in Cuba, we did this. When I was in Cuba, I used to do this. When I was in Cuba, I used to do that. Well, you're in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What are you doing here? Time makes ancient good uncouth. And Jonah, it doesn't matter that you follow God's call to Israel and, and for faithfully gave that prophetic message, you are failing to do that now, so now all you are is a Hebrew. God, you and I can retain titles, but we can't retain calls. Think about that. God is not impressed with titles, and we can keep our son of Amittai, the prophet from Gathafer, but though we, I may keep my diploma from Andrews, I can lose my call to ministry. The presence of God is where the mission of God is. And when you forsake the one, it's only a matter of time before the other one is, is affected. Jonah, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? And this question doesn't get answered. This question doesn't get answered because Jonah is being confronted and he is silenced. You were willing to give a message of mercy, compassion, and redemption to idolatrous, rebellious Israel. But that same message, why would you not give it to Nineveh? Because certainly God could save Israel because, you know, they're the nice guys. But Nineveh, they're the bad guys. And I hope you understand what I'm about to say. Can the gospel be preached effectively to Republicans? Can the gospel be effectively preached to Democrats? Our country is being divided politically, and that's what it is. But our church is being divided politically, and we can keep silent. Beloved, your loyalty is to Jesus first. We are responsible. We, 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 I'm a U.S. citizen now. I vote. I do my civic duties, and I, I'm responsible. And I'm not trying to make the pulpit a political whatever. What I'm appealing to you is that this pulpit is to call you back to recognize that the, the, the king that you and I serve, his kingdom is not of this earth. We ask for wisdom, for direction, and trying to do the best we can with what we have down here. And in either camp, there ain't much. But God, if God can save Nineveh, if God can save Nebuchadnezzar, certainly 
God can work in the White House. Amen? No matter who is in there. And we ought to be praying for them, no matter what political party they're from. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, pick me up. This is the solution. Throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. And this is the climax. The climax of the confrontation that takes place, not just through the storm now. Now the confrontation is being brought to Jonah through the sailors. The sailors are praying. He's not praying. He was sleeping. But now look at this. Jonah has, is looking at the eyes of individuals that when they reach their destination, they no longer have a cargo with which to say, now pay us, we have delivered. The cargo was tossed into the ocean because of this great tempest because this rebellious prophet named Jonah ran from the presence of God. That's how we lost the cargo. Sorry, we can't pay you. Your family will now go hungry. You are now in debt. The boat is damaged. Who's going to fix this now? What would you do to the man that causes that much financial hardship to you? When he tells you, the storm will go away if you throw me into the water. Jonas thinks they're going to throw me hard. But look at the confrontation. Nevertheless, the sailors rode even harder. You know, there's a proverb that says, that a soft tongue can break the bones. It is God's goodness that leads us to repentance. And here, Jonah's hard-hearted, prideful, spiritually prideful heart is being confronted by God, and he's told the sailors, just throw me and the storm will go away. Let's just have this nightmare done and over with. Just throw me. And they all go back to their oars because they cannot stomach the reality, the, the realization that their actions would cause one person to perish, yet Jonah was sleeping, completely aware that his neglect of the mission would cause an entire nation to perish. These sailors gave Jonah a big lesson on valuing other people's lives. They rode harder. I can't bear the thought of one person dying because of my actions. But Jonah, he slept. That's the delusion of sin in our lives. And there may be pagans that are more Christians, and there may be Christians that are more pagan. And the Christians are blindsided to it. That's why the Word of God has books like Jonah to save us. To save us. Jonah was a prophet and he was moving. So you could say that Jonah was a prophetic movement in the wrong direction. Just because a prophetic movement is moving doesn't mean that they're going where God is sending them to. And just because a church is active doesn't mean that they're doing what God is asking them to do. You know, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts begins with Jesus telling the disciples, wait, don't go, you need power. Power not simply to do, but power to know where and how to do it. We are in Cadillac. God has blessed us. God has guided us this far. And I am fearful of taking the steering wheel and thinking, I think we need to go that way. I'm terrified of that. And I'm already giving you a heads up. I want to do what God wants me to do here in Cadillac with you, along, along with you. 
And I want us to do it together, but I want us to be certain that where we're moving is where God is sending us. Amen? And that will require you to commit to your own personal life of prayer. And it'll demand that of my, myself as well, and I'm going to be transparent with you. Some years ago, Elder Gallimore was impressed to do something that, to me, I was like, oh, man, another meeting. I'm glad it's voluntarily. It's prayer and fasting. Because already my schedule was busting at the seams with this and that and trying to pastor and the school and all of these fires happening in the church. So I was busy. I was a very busy pastor. My wife kept telling me, Ariel, why don't you go to this prayer and fasting? Honey, look at my calendar. You tell me when. You tell me when, honey. So the Lord would use my wife as the sailors, right? So you are a pastor that just finished a series on prayer and you don't have time to pray? You know, we get our own custom-made profits when we get married. And I'm grateful for mine. Because <laughs> she prophesies with a beautiful smile. Oh, you're going. <laughs> And I'm glad I did after the third one I went. And I'm being transparent with you. I had a reconversion and personal revival. And I came back weeping. I was not a praying pastor. And I was trying to, uh, it's, it's amazing. That's why I relate to Jonah. I can relate to Jonah in that, you think you're doing things the way God wants you to do them, but you're way off base. You're, you're going to Tarshish. You're thinking you're going to Nineveh. Not by might, not by power, not by training in mission college, not by masters of seminary, but by my spirit. That's it. God reminded me of what he would do with me when I was a Bible worker, church planting in Columbus, Ohio. No degrees, no college. Um, actually, I didn't even know that I was under academic probation until I went back to college. We'll get to know each other's stories. But it wasn't until I was surrendered that as a Bible worker with humility, God would multiply things that just couldn't believe what God was doing with me. Sometimes having more causes us to trust God less. So sometimes God has to take away what we have so that we realize we have hardly nothing, Lord. We have a radio station, praise the Lord. We have a website, praise the Lord. But without the Spirit of God, how much does that amount to? I remember when we were in Harrisburg, one church got excited. We got a website. I was like, welcome to the trillion of other websites out there. Good luck getting found. I want us... I'm inviting you to partner with me in praying regularly for God to lead our church. Without him, we will see a stormy world. We will turn on the channels. Can anyone tell me what part of the world this might be? Australia, can anyone tell me what part of the world this might be? The Philippines with a volcano. Anyone tell me what part of the world this is? Puerto Rico, we were there. We were actually the day before in the towns that experienced the earthquakes and the, the destruction. Can anyone tell me where in the world this is? 
Can anyone tell me where in the world this is? Yes, the locust. Uh, can anyone, well, you may not know, this can happen anywhere, right? Uh, this is Iran when they were shooting uh, U.S. bases in retaliation. Aleppo. And I omitted one last picture because there are children here. But these are pictures that individuals of other denominations, individuals of other religions, individuals that have no religion, individuals that are agnostics, individuals that have no faith whatsoever in God, God is a delusion for them, yet when they see these images, they, they can know that planet Earth is a boat in a stormy ocean and that it is only a matter of time before the boat breaks and we all just perish. That's why individuals like Elon Musk is investing billions of dollars sending rockets to Mars so that we can repopulate Mars with the hopes that we don't kill each other there. It ain't going to happen. Because the problem is not planet Earth. The pl- problem is the human heart. It's sin, and there's only one solution for this planet, and it is Jesus Christ, His gospel, His grace, and we know that. The world may be calling out to their gods. Elon Musk is praying to science. That's their God. Elon Musk is praying to science, saying, science, save us from self-destruction. There are other scientists that are looking at genetics and saying, if we could just tweak our genes so that we do not cause cell death, self-replication can continue without ending, we, we can be mortal. Cryogenics and all of these sciences, the, the genome project actually was driven by the idea, the hopes that we can crack our code and somehow manipulate our genes so that we can create a, a human race that doesn't experience death. The problem is, tweak my genes all you want and make me immortal, I can go out there and a drunk driver ends all that. You cannot make someone genetically bulletproof, terrorist-proof, Suicide proof. Only the grace of God. And God has deposited the knowledge of that, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in our lives. What Elder Mitchell said is Monday morning when I'm at work, I am that sermon that can invite people to say, as you see this, know that we have hope. You are praying to gods that will never answer you. But let me tell you about my God. My God that when I was in the path of self-destruction, intervened with a mighty storm, not out of wrath, but out of mercy. I used to always think as a child growing up, hearing my dad preach on this story that, man, God must have been really angry because that was a big storm. It's not because God was really angry that he took a big storm. It's because Jonah was hard-headed, proud, and knucklehead Maximus that he needed a storm this size to get his attention. Some of us need little storms, but maybe you're going through a huge storm right now, completely unexpected, thinking you were hiding from God, and you think God is punishing you, but that storm in your life is God's mercy trying to get you back to him. That's all that storm is. Which one of these two individuals, individuals is sleeping in church? Church. You know, one of my professors, well, we're taking Hebrew class in undergrad. He told us, just come. If you're tired, just come. You can sleep in my class. At least subconsciously, subconsciously something will, will attach itself to your brain cells. But if you don't come, then nothing gets attached. He's, he might be hearing, the Holy Spirit can still work with this guy. But with this guy, he's somewhere else. And truth of the matter is, we don't need a phone. We just need to yield our thoughts 
to the one who, when in the providence of God, God sends a message, the very thing you need to hear most, your thoughts will wonder at that very moment. There are Christians that are asleep, not even realizing it. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 14 through 18 says, Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then yet that you walk circumspectly. That's watching out. Where you, where am I, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Evaluate yourself. Spend some time introspectively in the presence of God saying, Lord, am I, am I, am I going to Nineveh? Lord, the human heart is deceitful above all things, wicked. Who can know it? And that's not does my mom and dad know my heart is, do I know my heart? See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Church, are the days evil today? Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand, understand what the will of the Lord is for your life. And I can tell you right now with 100% certainty, the will of God for your life is for you to go to his mission. Because in his mission, you will find his presence in ways you've never experienced before. Be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish from this man's life and do not charge us with his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The, the, the waves are starting to slow down. Whoa, he was right. This is the true God. Neptune, he's a hoax. Uh, all these other Thor, he's, he's, he's he, not real. The Hebrew God, he's a real God. And then they see Jonah bobbing in the water. And all of a sudden they see ripples. Now we've got to take God seriously. Now the sailors are like, we will only worship you from now on. But they do not understand, and God will take those sailors in a journey. But Jonah, Jonah says it's because of me. God is punishing me. No, Jonah, God is saving you. And when that fish swallows Jonah, you have to think about what he's going through his mind. What a way to end. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gathafer. What a most tragic, unnecessary way to end my life. That's what he's thinking. The fish swallows him, and you have, we have to spend time in our imaginations in these places. Because many of us, like maybe you, I've been affected by children's stories, the children's books. I read my little girl's children's books, and the story of Jonah has Jonah playing, praying inside a big hollow space with light coming from the ceiling. And there's an anchor next to him and a crab, and that's not how it was. It was pitch black. The only thing Jonah, the only sense that Jonah could still use correctly was his hearing as the thumping of that fish's heart and the, all the, the met- metabolism that happens inside that fish and the muscle contractions, and it wasn't very roomy in there. There's not much room. He was squished by the muscles of this fish as this fish begins to descend deeper and deeper and deeper. I went scuba diving in my honeymoon in the the Dominican Republic with my wife. After 10 feet, my ears were hurting. 
My eyeballs were being pushed inside my skull, and I'm not being facetious. The, the pressure of the water around me, and people have to get used to that. And I don't know how deep Jonah's gone before, but his cochlea, his, his mechanisms of orientation are just all out of skilter. They're, he doesn't know where up and down is. He's being squished from every angle, little pockets of air, trying to find air inside this, this fish. Terrifying. Oh, just let me die. Why am I still conscious? I thought I was going to get eaten. Why am, I, why am I not being digested? And all of a sudden, he feels G-forces of movement. He feels a pull like we do when, when we crank the snowmobile or we step on the gas on the car. And the, the fish is starting to move violently because God has told the fish, go back to the shore. God used this fish as an assistant, as a supplemental aid for repentance. Because Jonah is going to end up where he started out. That great divide, that moment of great divide. Get on the boat to Tarshish or go to Nineveh. And something powerful that just came to me as I really read slowly this experience. Again, the children's storybooks don't help much because the ones that I've seen, it looked like those uh, watermelon seed spitting competitions. That's what it looked like. The fish is spitting Jonah. But the Bible doesn't say that the fish spat into the ocean. The Bible says that this fish had to vomit Jonah onto dry land. And there's only one way for a fish to do that. It's to beach itself. It's to plunge itself so fast, so fast, so direct against the shoreline that with the water and with the wave, the fish will make it to where the waters don't touch him anymore and will wiggle and move as clumsily as a fish can until there's dry land because the person he's about to regurgitate is completely disoriented. He's been in complete darkness for three days. His eyesight's going to be gone. His cochlear is way out of whack. If he was to leave him in the ocean, he would drown. If he was to vomit Jonah in the ocean, he would drown. He wouldn't know where, which way is up and down. I mean, sit in a bathtub for three days and see what your skin feels like. He's been sitting in gastric juices of a fish. His skin is all gummy and wrinkly. He's, he's blind. He can't see. He's grappling out that sand totally like a drunk man. He can't see. And as his eyes adjust, he is on dry ground. And as he orients himself, He's back at that point where he had made that decision. And then he looks and sees the last movements of this great beast gasping for air and then dying. Confronted by sailors who prayed while he slept, confronted by sailors compassionately rowing harder rather than casting him into the rest stormy sea, while he could care less about Nineveh, confronted by sailors who end up showing more respect and surrender to God than this rebellious, disobedient prophet of God. And lastly, confronted that to me is a type of Christ, a God that refuses to let us go, though we would not want anything more to do with him, a God that compassionately brings us back to the point of when we could make that decision again. Don't you wish you could redo some stuff in your life? The grace of God allows you that. 
When Paul says redeeming the time, that's exactly what he's referring to. God can re-offer you opportunities to make a different choice that you made back then. Isn't that amazing? And he does that through the sacrifice of Jesus. God was trying to tenderize this hardened spiritual heart of this prophet Jonah, so big head by the accolades and accomplishments he had, he became blind to the hardness that lied within. Only the sacrifice of Christ can melt your heart, my friends. The mission and the presence all converge in beholding Jesus. Jesus is not seeking to frustrate you. My brother, my sister, he's seeking to guide you. He's not seeking to harm you. He's trying to heal you. He's not seeking to destroy you. The storms are not there to destroy you. They're there to save you, save you from yourself. He's not seeking to forsake you. He is seeking to send you to the mission that right now you may be saying no to. That's the God we serve. It's interesting that in the Christian New Testament, a symbol that became attached to the Christian church was a fish. Because if there's ever a Savior that will be confrontational in your life, is Jesus Christ. The storms that brings and happens in our relationships, in our professions, in our pursuits, are nothing but the work of mercy of a God that does not want to lose you eternally, wants to save you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. How have you been responding to the mission of God in your life? More importantly, how's your prayer life? How's your time with Jesus? How's your time in His Word? It's not simply seeking better ways to explain the state of the dead. I've been there. It has its value, but not to change your heart. Are you spending time with your Lord and Savior so that you can understand His will for your life? So that you can be sure that you're going to Nineveh and not Tarshish? I'm inviting you, church, and I'm responding to this appeal myself. I need the Lord's guidance. I need His power if I'm ever going to be a blessing for you. And today I'm committing that, Lord, I need you. And I will demonstrate that by seeking you first every morning. Sometimes it's hard waking up before my little girls do. But Lord, I need that time with you more than anything. And I'm asking if there's anyone else this morning that would like to join me in this commitment of prioritizing your walk with the Lord above everything else. That you may know that we collectively are all pulling together to, because we know God is saying here, This is Cadillac's mission, so that all of us will be moving together. Is there anyone that would like to join me? I want to invite you to come forward. We pray together as a church that the God of heaven would give direction to us, that the God of heaven would give us passion, that the God of heaven would help us understand why these things happening in my life, Lord. If I am your child, then why the storms? If you're supposed to be a God of love, then Lord, why these uncomfortable chapters in my life? I have to tell you, 
He's a God that loves you with an everlasting love. He does not want to lose you. And your worst enemy is yourself. Precious Father, after getting this brief glimpse into the heart of someone that qualified as a prophet, and yet who could intentionally choose to flee your presence, Father, we are vulnerable to that so easily. And we need to come to grips to that, Lord. doesn't matter how long we've been at it, Lord. One day neglect in David caused so much. One moment of anger cost Moses so much. And Father, I have ample of those moments in my life. And I am moved as I look back and see how you consistently st- stepped in. Not to hurt me, but to save me from myself. So, Father, I stand here before my brothers and my sisters, not as a mighty man, but as a man that has come to recognize I can do nothing without Jesus. I come to believe his words I am divine, you are the branches. If any man abide in me and I in him, that man, that woman will bear much fruit, because without me, you can do nothing. And we don't believe that, Lord, because we get up too busy thinking, no, without my time, without my overtime, without this relationship, without this, Lord. And we don't believe, really, that without you, we can't do nothing. Forgive our prideful hearts that harden us, Lord. Paul says that the deceitfulness of sin is that it hardens our heart towards you so that we can forsake the mission and injure our sensitivity to your presence. Oh, Father, save us from ourselves. Save us from our deceptive hearts. Put the heart of Jesus inside of us, a heart that is willing, a heart that is tender to your voice. Father, as a church, we want to know that you are leading us. Not a man, not a pastor, not an elder, that you are the one leading this church, that we may honor and praise and glorify you alone. We want to be used. And Father, we want people to come to know you because of what we've done, not in spite of. Father, we believe in a God that hears prayers. Those pagan sailors got to experience that themselves. We this morning, Father, cry out to you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom that we may redeem the time. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. Amen.